0: welcome to this very unique sunday in the life of our church Um, before we pray i just want to invite you to ponder on a few things in the unique time that we find ourselves in in boise idaho Um, as of this morning there are five confirmed cases of COVID 19 um, or the novel coronavirus as we've been watching uh, play out on the news i'm sure you know about this and um, I have never pastored through an epidemic before. We've never uh, walked through that with my time here at Euclid. And I just want to encourage you to not give over into into panic, but to make wise and prudent decisions during this time. Uh, we have uh, made the decision to suspend physically gathering for the sake of our more vulnerable um, members of our congregation. And, The Bible says to not neglect gathering together, and so we take that very seriously, which is why we've taken painstaking efforts to gather in more creative ways. And so as you'll see the services progress, we're going to invest in some uh, ways of making gathering online uh, more approachable and easier for people who don't have access to the internet. We'll be um, proactive about that so that we don't neglect gathering together as a community through this time. We'll just gather together in more uh, creative uh, and safe ways. I want to encourage you to not um, to, to be prepared but to not hoard. Um, hoarding resources can really hamper some of our more vulnerable elderly and uh, those who can't leave um, even without this threat of sickness from their home. And so getting resources from the, from the store for them, uh, hoarding resources ourselves who are able-bodied and have transportation and things like that can really hurt and hamper other people. So um, in your uh, proactive ways of pr- preparing for yourself, be sure to think of others in your neighborhood and your close uh, relationships who might need those resources. Um, and perhaps make a stop for them as well and make sure that we're getting them the supplies that they need. Um, This is really a time for the church to emphasize who we are as uh, humanity, that we are together through everything that we go through. We're not um, just defending for our own selves and our own well-being during this time, but we're really making every decision for the sake of other people, especially those who are impacted the most in times like this. So, with that being said, I want to pray over over this time, this unique situation in our church and our culture, um, and I'd like to invite you to to pray with me um, as we as we begin this this time of looking at the scriptures and. Um, gathering together online today. Let's pray. Lord God, we know that you are a God who gives a spirit of strength, encouragement, wisdom, and faith. Lord God, I pray in these uncertain times that the church is a place that people can count on. And we understand even more deeply that the church is not a building, uh, that the church is not a physical place that we gather, but the church is the body of Christ. And I pray that as we're reminded of that, the Spirit of Christ that unified us together through our baptism will be the Spirit that unifies us together through these uncertain days, Lord God. And I pray that as we saw in other countries that took these measures that Boise is taking, that we limit our, our, our physical gathering just for a few weeks or a, or a month, Lord God, that they dramatically stopped the virus from spreading so quickly in their cultures. So Lord God, I pray that as we are taking these necessary precautions, we err on the side of, of grace and mercy, precaution and wisdom, and seek how we can be the body of Christ and, and be present for those who are suffering in the midst of this. Mourn with those who are mourning. And be, be resources of encouragement and help uh, in, in our creative, resourceful ways during these days. Lord God, give us the strength to be who you've called us to be and push us beyond our parameters of the ways that we functioned before so that we can respond in the ways that you'd have us respond in these uncertain days. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we're going to be looking at, I just want to say first a special thanks to Ashley Brown. She is our... uh, medical professional in these days she has come and given her time to sanitize the entire church building we're talking with all the groups we have over eight groups that use our facility and so i'm co- coordinating with her to make sure that the facility is nice and clean um, so there's a special thanks to to her and then alec hibbs who has come to make sure that all the tech is working well for the days ahead for these um, online uh, worship gatherings so just want to say some special thanks and encouragement to them today um I want to ask you a question before we look at the passage today. What, How does Jesus push us beyond our preconceived boundaries of faith? When we have deep, deep convictions, those are usually the places that we are immovable. But when Jesus shows up, even in the places of our deepest convictions and opinions, how might Jesus, who he is as the Son of God, how might he be pushing us beyond those things, redefining those things so that we can see divisions between us and God, us and each other, fall away. We're going to be reading what's now a famous conversation between Jesus and who we call the woman at the well. Um, What's troubling about this is that she doesn't have a proper name. She is unnamed in scripture, and I want to maybe give us a good tool of how to think about that towards the end of the sermon today. Um, but we're going to be looking at this conversation between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at the well. I'm going to read the whole passage for us. So if you have your Bible with you, turn to John chapter 4, verses 5 through 42. And, and we'll look at this conversation and be paying close attention to how Jesus um, pushes the conversation is think about this conversation maybe happening on Facebook today or or in a coffee shop and how how Jesus leads the conversation and how um, unique it is compared to the conversations we have today. Um, So John chapter 4 verses 5 through 42, I am reading from the Common English Translation. Jesus had to go through Samaria. He came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and and Jesus was tired from his journey. So he sat down at the well, and it was about noon, the hottest part of the day. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy him some food. The Samaritan woman asked, why do you, a Jewish man, ask me for a drink, a Samaritan woman? John tells us Jews and Samaritans don't associate with each other. Jesus responded, if you recognized God's gift and who is saying to you, give me some water to drink, you would be asking him and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you don't have a bucket, and, and, and the well is deep. Where would you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave the well to us, and he drank from it himself, and so did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring water that bubbles up into eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and will never need to come here to draw water again. Jesus said to her, go get your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. "'You are right to say, I don't have a husband,' Jesus answered. "'You've had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. "'You've spoken the truth.'" The woman said, "'Sir, I see that you are a prophet. "'Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, "'but you and your people say that it is necessary to worship in the temple in Jerusalem.'" Jesus said to her, "'Believe me, woman.'" The time is coming when you and your people will worship God, neither on this mountain nor in the temple. You and your people worship what you don't know. We Jews worship what we do know because salvation has come from within us. But the time is coming and is here when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. God looks for those who worship God this way. God is spirit and is necessary to worship God in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will teach everything to us. Jesus said to her, I am, I am the one who speaks with you now. Just then, Jesus' disciples arrived and were shocked that he was talking with a woman But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? The woman put down her water jar and went into the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who has told me everything I've ever done. Could this man be the Christ, the Messiah? They left the city and were on their way to see Jesus. In the meantime, the disciples spoke to Jesus saying, Rabbi, eat. Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples asked each other, has someone brought him food? Jesus said to them, I am fed by doing the will of the one who has sent me and by completing God's work. Don't you have a saying, four months and then it's time for harvest? Look, I tell you, open your eyes and notice that the fields are already ripe for the harvest. Those who harvest are receiving their pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that those who saw who sow and those who harvest can celebrate together. This is a true saying, the one who sows and another harvests. I have sent you to harvest what you don't work hard for. Others worked hard and you will share in their hard work. Many Samaritans in the city believed in Jesus because of the woman's word when she testified. He told me everything I've ever done, she said. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said to us, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is truly the Savior of the world. The written word of the Lord. So there's a lot going on here. And and I think before we zoom in on the passage to try to ask, what does this mean for our conversations of faith today? Or or before we take a part of the passage and ask, what does this mean for us as the church today? I, I really think we need to zoom out and understand some of the context of what's happening here, what's at play in this conversation. Because as soon as Jesus asks that first question, Give me, or says a statement, give me a drink of water. There is so much that happens behind that phrase that makes that statement so profound and so surprising. And, and to, to understand some of the background, we have to rewind to about 920 B.C., where the, the nations of Israel have gathered around this same well of Jacob. The same well that he, he met his, both of his wives, Leah and Rachel. The, 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 the well that all of Israel has now come to, to see as a life source. They make a covenant among the 12 tribes of Israel to pursue God's will in the world. We can read that in in the book of Joshua, but what also happens at that time in 920 BC is that they call the Samaritans, who are their ethnic cousins, they call them apostates from the faith, heretics, Um, they're unclean, and and they do not make the covenant with Samaria at that time. And by the time of Jesus' day, the Jewish people had deepened and widened that division between Israel and Israel. In Samaria, Samaritans were viewed as unclean, like the lepers or tax collectors or prostitutes. Um, they weren't even allowed to use the same utensils. So, like if a Samaritan used a plate and fork, they, Jews were not allowed to touch those same utensils. They were they were viewed they were viewed as heretics and apostates to the faith. And more more so, it was so offensive to the Jews that they used Torah, the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. They worshipped Yahweh, they understood Moses, they followed Moses as a prophet. But then they branched off and created their own perspective of who God was and who the Messiah would be that would come into the world. So they agreed in theology and faith all the way up until about 920 BC and then a division was formed and a canyon was built between the Jews and the Samaritans. And on top of that, a Jewish man is not even allowed to talk to Jewish women, let alone a Samaritan woman who was viewed as unclean, this apostate, this heretic, this this person that just misuses the faith that God had given Israel. On top of the fact that she's a Samaritan, she's also a woman, and Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. And our passage starts out, Jesus had to go through Samaria. The the reality is that Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. In fact, when Jews would travel that region, they would take an extra six-day journey around Samaria because of how unclean they viewed that place and those people. Those unclean people. And then Jesus walks right into Samaria, sits down at the well, And says, give me a drink of water. A Jewish rabbi asking a Samaritan woman to use not only to have her serve him but use her utensil, use her hands, use her well to give him a drink of water. What that says is that our Savior of the world has come in to break down these unholy, unhealthy parameters that we build between each other to call each other unclean. And he destroys those barriers that we build between each other. And he says, I want you to serve me. You are not unclean. You are not unholy. I want you to be able to have a relationship with me. Would you give me a drink of water? And this openness to invitation, he invites her to give him a drink of water. This opens a question in her mind. All of this history between our peoples. Do you not understand who you are? You are a Jewish rabbi and I am a Samaritan woman. There are these divisions that have been held in place for generations. It is now our tradition. We don't use your stuff. You don't use our stuff. And we're going to keep it that way. That's That's how we have lived for centuries. And you ask me for a drink of water? And then Jesus responds, not through condemning her wrong beliefs, not through condemning her people as heretics or apostates from the faith, but continues to work out theology with her and says, if you knew who you were talking to, You'd ask for living water. So he furthers the invitation. He doesn't shut down the conversation and and talk about where he's right and she's wrong. He furthers the invitation into understanding their relationship without these preconceived barriers of uncleanliness, unholiness, and drives towards pursuing truth with her. Working out theology together. You see, Samaritan people wanted a Messiah through the line of Moses because they only had the first five books of what we call the Bible. They worshipped on a mountain. They had different traditions, different beliefs, different doctrines. And the, and the Jews were waiting for a, a, a priest-like king because of the tribe of the Levites, a, a king-like king through the line of David, and a prophet like Elijah and Moses. So they were waiting for a very different kind of Messiah, But yet Jesus tells her, I am the one you are waiting for. He is not only the Messiah that the Samaritans are waiting for, but he's also the Messiah the Jews are waiting for, which says to me that the parameters of what we have as Messiah or Savior of the world are never big enough. Jesus confounds them and expands them always. Jesus enters into our lives, sits down, invites us into a dialogue with God Almighty, and blows apart our parameters of who God is and who we have made each other out to be. Jesus continues to drive us forward to pursue truth together. I feel like that is such a deep challenge for the church today. I want you to imagine with me the people that you feel like would fit on that unclean list. The, the, the people that we would say, they believe in such different ways. They live their life in such different ways. We can't, we can't use the same things they use. We can't use the same words they do. We, we can't really associate with them because we, we are not like them. What sort of people would fit that list for you? If you sat down at your local watering hole, your coffee shop, wherever you gather together, even especially online, as we are having this sermon right now online where conversations take place. If you have a conversation with someone, where does your mind go? What divisions does it build? If you know that someone is a Democrat or a Republican where do the divisions start to be drawn for you? If you know that someone is a, is a Muslim or a, a Hindu or from a different faith background, where do those divisions start to be drawn for you? And maybe, maybe we shouldn't even start with those outside of our faith. It, even in the Nazarene tribe, when someone the terms conservative or liberal or progressive, where do your boundaries, your lines of division start for you? Do you start to make delineations between where you feel like you're right and they are wrong and then start the conversation after that? Or do you sit down and drive the conversation with the goal of pursuing truth together? Because the difference between Christ's conversation here and the ones we often have, especially online, is Jesus starts with invitation where I feel like the church often starts with condemnation. We condemn what we see to be wrong in the view of other people, and we start with how they are wrong and we are right, rather than following Christ's example to pursue truth together in these deep conversations of what we actually believe about God. And then we look at broader tribes. We can have disagreements in our own tribe of Christianity in the Church of the Nazarene, but what about Presbyterians or Baptists and and Catholics and all of these other faithful groups of Christians? Do we start to draw lines of delineation that way? Or if we look at other people and the way that they live, the way that they choose to function in their relationships, Jesus brings up her relationships. She's had many broken relationships in her past. Do we look at the way that people order their lives and the relationships that they choose and then choose lines of division again about what's right and what's wrong? I think the deep challenge here is that pursuing truth is different than marking categories of what's right and what's wrong. Jesus sits down to pursue a conversation about belief, whereas oftentimes we get entrenched in what we believe to be right and what we believe to be wrong, and then we start our conversations that way. I think it's just so important here because convictions are important. I want, I want you to hear me this morning. Deep beliefs and our convictions are so important. But how we interact with our convictions, with those in the world around us and with God, is, is the whole part of our faith, our righteousness in Jesus Christ. So we can have our internal beliefs, our internal convictions and understandings, but how we live those out is the difference between following Christ's righteousness or following our own perspectives and opinions in the world in the name of Jesus. And we can just look at history and so much terrible things have happened in the name of Jesus. But when we want to function in the righteousness of Christ, we have to start with surrendering even our deepest beliefs to the character and likeness of Jesus Christ who sits down at a well and doesn't start off with condemnation, but starts off with a conversation that breaks long-held barriers of separation. Imagine the world if the church stopped asking people to surrender to our own opinions of Jesus and asked the world to surrender to Jesus with us. I think that posture makes or breaks our message of salvation in the world. We don't ask people to surrender to our own opinions of Jesus. We ask people to surrender to the character and likeness of Jesus Christ who reveals all of God in the world. He talks about this living water, and I can't help but uh, remember all the times that we talk about water in the Bible, from the time that uh, the the great flood in the world that cleansed the world of brokenness and disaster, to to the time that uh, Israel was led out of Egypt through the water, and, and they carried the Ark of the Covenant over the water Jordan, and then Jesus was baptized in the water, and all of these these understandings of water leads me to think about what baptism is for us it's it's not so much about what work we do in the waters of baptism but what God liberates and does in and through us through our baptism we are brought from an old way of doing things to a new resurrected life in Jesus Christ and so his living water that he is offering her is this water of, of a new life that bubbles up into eternal life. That, that, that we are invited into this, this the, what we call the church today, this united body of Christ pursuing truth together. That we have surrendered to the way of God in the world through our baptism. And when we do that, we never thirst again. But with our baptism starts with humility and surrender. And so when we have this unimaginable God, this infinite God that will be infinitely knowable for all of eternity, then our posture must always be humility and never we have it all together. Our baptism is a surrender in humility that we are pursuing truth always in Christ. Never, we have it all figured out and people really need to hear what we have to say because we have it figured out. No, it's what Christ has done in and through us that gives us our joy. And so we surrender to that ongoing work of truth. Never finishing, always pursuing in faithfulness rather than getting entrenched in our own perspectives of what's right and what's wrong. Deep convictions matter. Jesus was deeply convicted, but he didn't let his convictions lead to division between God and humanity. His convictions led him to a deeper relationship with God and humanity. Jesus' greatest commandment is to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If our theology doesn't result in that, then conversations like this with Jesus are needed because we need to break down those divisions that we have between ourselves and God, that we have with ourselves and each other, and the divisions that we put up in ourselves for being all that we've been created to be. I want to conclude, there's so much else uh, here in this passage, but I really want to talk about how Jesus ends this relationship. I was thinking today, and so you can just take this thought and, and run with it yourself. It's, not, it's kind of a half-baked thought, but I, I think every time that there's a nameless person in Scripture, like this woman at the well, or Lazarus, and the, the poor man, and there's several other examples of the character doesn't have a name. I think the scripture writers are inviting us to put ourselves in that nameless person's shoes. I think we're supposed to understand and empathize with where they are in life, to understand how this woman might have seen the world in first century, might have seen Jesus in that time, might have seen herself in that day, so that we can step in and empathize in her shoes and take on her name as our own. What does it feel like to be a nameless person in the midst of what God is trying to do in the world with the one who will give you an everlasting name, the one who deeply knows you when the culture around you doesn't even take the time to name you? Who is it that we are supposed to be in the, in the shoes of these characters? And, and so Jesus brings up her relationships, which can be really kind of frustrating or uncomfortable but what the well signified and this is really fascinating what the well signified for jewish people is it's actually a place where romance happened so jacob met his two wives around this well and the well in other parts of the old testament also signified the the beginning of a romantic marriage or relationship and then then Jesus brings up the fact that she's had five failed marriages or relationships. So so that, that romantic tradition would have been in the minds of those who heard this event or this conversation for the first time. And so they would remember Jacob and his wives and all those who had met around the well. And I remember Hosea marrying Gomer, the prostitute, and how Israel he is the prophet to the northern kingdom where samaria is and hosea called for reconciliation called for this 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 redemption in israel's relationship with god and that Israel kept, the northern kingdom kept looking for relationship in all the wrong places. Like this woman at the well, looking for covenant, looking for relationship and solidarity in things that fail time and time again. And Israel during the time of Hosea kept looking for covenant in idols, covenant in other superpowers, covenants in kings, covenant in everything else other than the will of God in the world. And Jesus then brings up her relationships at this place of covenant, place of pursuing a covenanted relationship and says, you are right when you say you don't have a husband, you've had five and this man you're with is not even your husband. What if this nameless woman at the well is the church and her bridegroom was looking at her, wooing her into a covenantal relationship of who she's called to be in this world. What if this is the bridegroom calling the church, his bride, to a faithful covenant of all that Jesus has come to be as Messiah in the world? Because when she realizes that he's the Messiah, the Savior of the world, what happens? She runs back to Samaria and people give their lives to Christ because of her testimony. And then they invite Jesus in to stay with them and even more begin to follow Christ. What if this is a message to the church to be ones who choose solidarity and covenant with Christ above all else in the world? What if this is a call to have our primary allegiance, not to anything else, not to a nation state or a political ideology or our resources, our relationships, to have our allegiance primarily confirmed with Jesus Christ as the church? so that we can have all of our other allegiances in the proper order. Jesus is still wooing and calling the church as our bridegroom. And because of that, we have a name as the church. We call ourselves Christians because we pursue who Jesus is in covenant. So throughout this week, I think the church is given a unique opportunity. I think we're in the outer lands that we never, that we avoid as a culture. We never want to be in a pandemic. It's like Samaria. We were walking, we want to walk past it. We want to avoid it. We, we want to avoid times of trouble, times of uncertainty. So we do take painstaking efforts like the Jewish people would to walk around Samaria or our uncertain troubled times so that we can stay safe and secure. But I think in uncertain times like today, we are to pursue Christ as our refuge, Christ as our strength, and to use this opportunity to pursue life-giving, invitational conversations with each other. What if we took this opportunity to transform our social media conversations to be ones of tearing down boundaries rather than ones of condemnation? What if we invited small groups of people around our table, people that we would not likely have a conversation with and pursue the truth together with them rather than define them by what you are against? What if we are called as the church to be there for the people that we would normally avoid? in a time that we would rather not be in right now. I want to invite you to pray with me as we conclude today's message. Join us next week. We're going to have a full band with us, and we're going to invite you into a full worship service, and we're really taking one week at a time in these uncertain times. But I just want to encourage you. Don't lose heart. Put your faith and trust in Christ. Pursue the well-being of the least among you. Do not hoard, but rely on God for your daily resources and provide daily resources for each other. And pursue Christ together, even if it's in different, more creative ways than we have before. May the world see the church respond in wisdom. Let me pray for us today. Lord God, as we have looked and learned from your word today, I pray, Lord God, that you would come and satisfy our unsettled hearts, give us wisdom and discernment in the days ahead, and help us to pursue truth intentionally with one another so that we might, by our testimony of our convictions in you, others may be brought to a full revelation of Christ through the testimony of the church. Help us to err on the side of invitation and dialogue so that the door may be opened for others to see you more fully. May we be that connection point to the world, to you, Lord God. Help us with our divisions. We have so many divisions between us. Let us take intentional steps and empower us in faith to see those divisions redefined re-established so that we can draw closer to you and closer to each other and understand ourselves in love. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Go in the peace of Christ.